0: This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me, Dr. Mick Pope, and Christ is Risen! He has risen indeed. I hope you had a great Easter and that it was everything that Easter is for you normally. I confess that Easter is one of those times in the church calendars. It's harder to get into than Christmas because, of course, Christmas gets the huge commercial push and you see more stuff. I confess I haven't really gotten to Lent for the past few years because it of overtones and connotations of a certain religiosity that I'm a bit wary of. But that said, I value the idea and think, one year wondering what I could do, and particularly given my eco-theological bent, what that might be. What would I give up for 40 days? Could I do without my car for 40 days, for example? That would be be difficult. Uh, Will I give up meat for an environmental reason or an ethical reason? will I bombard myself with all the worst news that I possibly can and and process that? So leading up to Good Friday, that really takes effect. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Do you think about the cross in terms of the societal ills and evils? Do you associate the cross with the environmental devastation and the huge justice issues, the issues of equity, in terms of resource sharing and the impact that our carbon emissions, for example, have on people in the Pacific? Do you put that in terms of the cross and think that those things were nailed to the cross? It's not something that you'll hear uh, very often. I went to church on Good Friday and I went to church on Easter Sunday and I heard a couple of, I guess, fairly standard church sermons for those things. And I'm not Bagging those sermons, and I'm not bagging the preachers, and so on. There's things that they made me think of. I think that's always good. You don't have to like everything or weigh everything in the same way. Or it's very much in your attitude. I think and one of the for those who are listening who have studied theology or you've read theology or so on, it's very very easy to fall into the trap that you become a hypercritical. Now that said, in a number of disciplines from theology to science that I also do to to any number of other things, it's important to have critical faculties. It's important to be able to pick things apart. There are a number of Christians dedicated to deconstructing certain versions or visions of the Christian faith. It's also important to be loving and kind and constructive. And so I'm not, not having a go, but on the Friday I heard Uh, A Good Friday sermon, and one of the phrases that got used quite a bit was about Jesus paying the price. And it's interesting because, you know, Mark 10, Jesus is talking about politics. It's an incredibly political statement. Don't be like the Gentiles lording over them. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And of course, a ransom, when you ransom somebody from the slave market or, or so on, you pay a financial price. So there's that sense of a financial transaction, and it's talking about deliverance from slavery. Um, and I, I think very much from the powers of darkness. So if you translate that directly into other ideas of the atonement, I think you warp them. So you need to be very careful. So that was one of the things that, that I picked up on. And then on the Easter Sunday sermon, there was there was a great, wonderful attempt to try and merge or work in what's been happening in Australian politics with the the, um, the cases of, of rape and sexual abuse and harassment that's been happening in Parliament, um, allegedly, and that staffers have allegedly been involved in, and uh, a current serving politician allegedly was involved in an, an historical rape. And this has all been incredibly painful for, for women, very much so, particularly those victims of sexual abuse or rape. And disturbing for many of us, uh, sitting back and seeing things maybe not dealt with in quite the way in which we'd like. Anyway, there was an attempt to link this into the sermon. I thought that was really good. And then there was, I guess, your kind of standard apologetic for the Christian faith. And as you know, or as you may be familiar with, Mary Magdalene features in all the tomb, empty tomb stories. And it's a standard argument to make that, oh, women... Um, women's testimony was not reliable in the first century, so it was deemed. Therefore, you wouldn't make up a story about a woman being the first witness uh, if it wasn't true. Or, that's a pretty good argument, you can say, for the Christian faith. Now, that I don't argue with, but it's a wonderful opportunity to say that Jesus elevated women by doing that, that indeed, it was deliberate. Why didn't Jesus appear to Peter or to the disciple whom Jesus loved in John. But he chose to appear to Mary Magdalene. And I'll tell you why. In, in Jewish culture, in various forms or understandings of Genesis 3, and you get elements of that in Paul as well, without tarring him with a particular brush, women bore the mark of the, the sin or the temptation of Eve. And if you read John chapter 20, you remember, and I've said this before, but I want to say it again because it's very timely. On the first day of the week, beginning of a week, before sunrise, before light was created, if you will, or the the, the dawning of a new day, Mary thinks that Jesus is the gardener. She's in the garden. And what does he turn around and say? Don't cling to me. Don't cleave to me like Eve was to cling to Adam the two would become one flesh, and they would produce offspring. Not because I think that Jesus saw anything wrong with sex, but what he was saying, that it was in a new creation, and it was a new creation, with all the connotations that that carries for renewal of the human vocation to care for the soil, to feed itself in, in a sustainable fashion, and to look after the earth, and I'm using the language loosely, let's just run with it for now, to rule wisely, because indeed in Genesis 2, uh, the atom made from the the dust of the earth is language about enthronement and and royal rule, indeed a priestly royal rule, Uh, was that now women were redeemed in that sense. Indeed, all of humanity is, of course, redeemed in that sense. But in that special sense, here's Mary, appearing as a new Eve. And women in that patriarchal society are elevated up. I'm lifting my hands up. There's no video, but just imagine me lifting my right hand up as I say this. And in that, her primary job is to not housework, not produce babies, although there's nothing wrong with either of those, but to be the first apostle the first sent one in the new kingdom to go and tell the male disciples who hadn't stuck around that Jesus was risen from the dead and that a new uh, age had finally dawned, that age of now and not yet. So I don't hear that often enough. I don't hear that in a sermon that the new creation has dawned. Now here's... Here's one of the issues why, of course, is that you preach a sermon on Good Friday, Easter Sunday, you do a good job, I heard good sermons, I'm not saying I didn't, and you want to make an appeal. You want to make an appeal to an individual to say, assuming that they're there because they've been thinking about it, because they've got Christian family or Christian friends or so on, that one-time shot for them to make a quote-unquote decision for Christ. Yes, that's entirely right and it's entirely true. Repentance means changing of mind, change of mind about who you think God is, in particular who you think Jesus is, how you see yourself and what you want the purpose of your life to be. But there's so much that could be said about that. And I know it's not going to be loaded into one sermon or one conversation, but here's the thing. Uh, You could say that, for example, standard Christian line that the world's a mess Human beings are naturally selfish, and we have wars, and we have all sorts of things, environmental disasters, etc., etc. If you, if you buy that, and you're probably not going to hear that in the sorts of churches that follow the line I'm, I'm taking. And in the Christian church, we call that sin. I know that's an old-fashioned, outdated word, but it's the uh, was it C.S. Lewis who said it? It's the the one Christian doctrine that's been really proved to be true over and over again. And you know that if you look deep in your heart, that you're selfish, and if you stand before God, and, uh, if you died tonight and you stood before God, where would you end up? And, and this is the kind of the talk that's often, I'm not saying this is what I heard on the weekend, but it's often the appeal or a variation thereof, not quite so full on, and not necessarily using the H word, that is hell. And so there's an appeal then, well, if you're worried about this, if you're thinking about this, well... The cross is a demonstration that God loves you because he sent his son to die for your sins. And you'll get various versions of what that might be, look might look like. Um, they can be quite lurid. And uh, look, I don't want to get into the whole atonement thing tonight. Something I really want to go back and look at and how it relates to all these things. We are, of course, going to touch on that in the second half of the program. i will we'll talk more about that in a few minutes' time. And so you ask people to to make a decision for Christ, and there is nothing wrong with that. And that's what I did. I came to faith with something known as the bridge illustration, which is huge chasm, sin in the middle separating man, and it was man on one cliff face or one side of the huge chasm, and God on the other. And we try to use religion and music and art and all these things to bridge the gap, but only Christ can. And if you do that, with Jesus as the bridge and sin running. Um, Vertically, Jesus running horizontally, you make a cross. It's pretty neat, okay? It's it's a pretty snappy kind of thing. Um, the problem with most snappy presentations of the gospel is that they're highly contextualized and usually highly individualized and so on and so forth. So what if it instead you could say something like, what we see um, in the world today is that there's a great deal of problems. Uh, there's We've seen in the media that uh, women are constantly treated as second-hand citizens, that there's a grave sense of injustice towards indigenous people in this country, as there are around the globe, that we seem to be going, um, running hell-bent blindfold towards the cliff of environmental destruction, and destroying this beautiful world that we've been given to live in, and all these creatures uh, that show forth a wisdom, a, a beauty, a marvel that points towards the divine. And so God loves this world. God made this world. God's come back to redeem this world. And in Jesus, we see what God is like in the way in which He treated people, uh, in the way in which He spoke to people, in the amazing things that He did, fulfilling the promises of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. And then He took evil, He took um, empire, He took uh, religious hypocrisy, He took on the devil Himself stared him down face to face. And that took him to a cross, executed uh, by the religious elite and the Roman authorities. And in that, he removes the barrier that stands between human beings truly flourishing by recognizing that they need to be uh, reconciled to God, have their sins forgiven. And not just this, but God in renewing the entire world has this great uh, mission, this great vision to rid the world of evil and suffering. Do you want to be part of the problem or do you want to be part of the solution? Now, I've mangled this and I want to do this in another episode, but what you can see is what I'm doing is quite different. What it's doing is it's recognizing not just that my own personal faults and that I need to repent of those. Amen. that's true. But that the world as a whole And I tried to touch on things like the environment and societal ills and problems of colonialism. You could hit on all the isms, and some people will recoil from those, but that's oftentimes because you have the privilege of not having to suffer those things. And then say, well, God's doing something fantastic for the entire world, the entire creation, and begging the question, do you want to be part of that? Or do you want to continue to contribute to that? And so it's not just a the magnifying glass on your own personal sins that no one else sees. Uh, cheating on your tax or whatever it is. You know, all the usual things that people will talk about personal piety issues or lack thereof. It's normally around reproduction and sexuality, isn't it? So that's the sort of thing that I'd like to hear on a, an, an Easter Sunday that takes the vision... Of the garden, and Jesus is the new gardener, and Mary is the new Eve, and brings everything together. All the beauty that is the gospel, all the beauty that is a human being transformed and renewed in the image of God, that is of Christ, and given new purpose and vocation, not just to sit around and pray all day, and that might be the vocation for some. But to understand that there are others for whom they can have a redeemed set of relationships and sense of their vocation in their job. Uh, involved in environmental activism, involved in peace and justice. All these things. And yet we don't often hear it because it's a difficult thing to do and it's a, a mind shifts. Um, you know, real change in thinking. And this again, a whole bunch of really good Easter sermons I've heard over the years on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. But maybe it's time to do something different and to appeal to the individual to become part of something, part of a Christian community, part of the great mission of the uh, Missio Dei, the mission of God in the renewal of all things. Anyway, that's a a brief uh, re-reflection on John 20. After the break, I want to think a little bit more about atonement theology from um, a less preached passage around this time of year. Welcome back to the program, and in the first half we were looking at John 20. I was reflecting upon Easter sermons and asking the question, could we think about story in John's Gospel in broader terms and preach an Easter sermon that appealed to what God is doing in the entire world and not just in individual human hearts, and yet bringing the two together, traditional Christian piety and conversionism, and the great Missio Day, or the Echo Missio day. So Missio Day means mission of God. It's often used to talk about what God's doing in the world outside of the church. It's something of a brave word, in a way, because it acknowledges the fact that the Spirit goes ahead of the church. And, and some Christians are very strong on this, of course. If um, you're Pentecostal, obviously, your pneumatology is strong, or active at least. If you are a Calvinist, then, of course, the Spirit's out there converting those Without you doing anything, kind of deal. Um, there are other ways of envisaging it. So I guess I'm saying that the Spirit's active in the world. It's certainly active in renewing the world. Um, I'll say it up front. I've said this before in other contexts that our Spirit uses people like Greta Thunberg, I think, and to call the church forward to the eco missio day or the ecological mission of God, which is the renewal of the creation. That's all pretty radical. But yeah, well, maybe it's not. I don't know. It's will I I'll leave it up to you to decide. So again, to say, I've heard some really good Easter sermons. I'd like to hear a sermon like that a bit more often. But anyway, so what about the cross? That's Good Friday. The the cross is, you know, one of the problems with the cross, and the, well, let me no, Let me rephrase that. One of the problems with the way in which the church proclaims the cross is oftentimes like, well, let me cast it another way. I heard someone posit a question, what was more important, Christmas or Easter? And the theologically correct answer, of course, was Easter, because that's when Jesus dies on the cross. Um, But the cross is useless without the resurrection. And the resurrection is um, a bodily one. Now, actually, I was reading a, a good book. I'm really enjoying it. It's called What is the Bible by rob bell and at one point and he's not denying the bodily resurrection i don't think but at one point he kind of mischievously says well given people didn't recognize jesus initially when they saw him resurrected then the resurrection body must be quite different i don't think he's denying the resurrection body what he is doing i reckon is a subtle dig at those who are so obsessed with the bodily resurrection but don't follow through on the significance so I think Christmas and Easter, if you separate them and say, oh, I like one better than the other, one's more important, you've lost the plot. It's it's like those who describe the Gospels as uh, extended introductions to um, the crucifixion. And the reason I have a profound problem with that, of course, is again about new creation theology, about Jesus teaching, not how to stay saved or not, I don't know what, simply how to win converts by being nice or some such, but about what the new kingdom is like, what the kingdom of God is like, uh, what we're meant to be as children of God in this now and not yet age. Anyway, so the passage, I think, would be nice to hear more about. Yes, it doesn't come from the Gospels, and I know um, red-letter Christians and all that, that we should really focus on. On Jesus, the words of Jesus, these of Jesus. In fact, I just alluded to that, right, in, in contesting one view of the gospel. But that Paul had some amazing insight. Colossians chapter one. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. That is a tremendous vision. That ties creation to incarnation, to cross and resurrection. That is the gospel. And that gives us a great vision of what the cross achieves. So let me go through it a little bit. This is kind of really off the cuff, so this won't be particularly precise or thorough. But firstly, it says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, there's some potential problems here. Um, firstborn, when applied to Jesus, you think back to John chapter 1, it's really about preeminence. And there's nowhere, despite what some. Um, I don't know what you'd describe them, but I'm talking with all due respect to Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons that Jesus is is understood to be pre-existent and fully divine. Now, that's developed language later than the Gospels and later than Paul here. Nonetheless, it flows out of a whole bunch of things uh, that you can see in the Gospels. And yeah, you need to do that work, and that happens all the time in theology. It's the task of theology. It's the task of the Church. Once the Church, if you like it, stop being direct witnesses of things or knowing people who have been direct witnesses and writing stuff down, then it's more in the phase of writing down stuff about what's been written down. Yeah, of course, the primary goal is orthopraxis, right behavior, right practice, mission, but orthodoxy or at least hammering out what we think is right with holding loosely um, you know, provisionally is also the task of the church. And so, you know, once you get the creeds, um, they're trying to really explore this mystery. But here's the image of the invisible God. So that sounds ridiculous when you read it straight off the bat. But of course, Genesis one talks about human beings being made in the image of God. It's the thing that makes idolatry a rubbish because if you want to look at the image of God, it's in another human being, which is not to say that non-human doesn't reflect God, but that's a topic for another time. But it also says that God's invisible, so you can't construct. Idols. You can't make images of God as much as we try in all traditions. But human beings um, um, are that image and preeminently the firstborn, that is Jesus. All things uh, were created in heaven on earth. That's a merism. Merism is a fancy word of saying um, from one end of something to another. So, like as far as it's east from west, or um, you know, you search your child's room from top to bottom to look for the favorite toy or favorite item of clothing. It's that kind of thing. Uh, it means everything. But it's its pointed that when it talks about th- heaven and earth, uh, things visible and invisible, he's talking about the spiritual as well as the physical. Whatever the spiritual might mean for you, whether it be angels or demons or the things that we can't see that are part of creation, they're not like you or I. And then he talks about things like thrones, dominions, rulers or powers. And given that this is in the context of heaven and earth, it can mean earthly thrones. So Thronos, so and that can um, refer to um, you know temples that worship uh, the emperor as divine and it can refer to the thrones in the vision in, in Revelation 4 and 5. So it can refer to all sorts of both spiritual and human powers and the way in which the two relate. And That's again too, a topic too big for now but think about Walter Wink if you've read any Wink. He talks about Institutions having a manifest spiritual dimension to them that's non-reducible, not reducible to sociology. Um, he denies the independence of the demonic powers. I think that goes too far, but I, to have that nuanced discussion takes another time. Uh, he himself is before all things, so he's preeminent, and all things hold together in him. Uh, he's the head of the body, of the church. So you know, think Roman society: the head of Roman society was the the emperor. Uh, the body that is the church, the ecclesia, the gathering of God's redeemed, the head is Christ. We need to remember this in all their debates about theology and, and so on. Uh, he's the firstborn from the dead. Remembering that in first century Judaism, there was a strong... Um, A representation of Judaism who believed in the bodily resurrection at the last day when everyone would be judged. But no one picked up on the idea that someone might be raised first. And Jesus is that one. Um, Firstborn from the dead. So it points to the importance, the central importance of the bodily resurrection of Christ and therefore ours. Not the resuscitation, but a new physical existence. So it's not about being beamed up to Uh, To God, it's not about going to heaven when you die. It's about a new embodiment. And you can't do social justice without that. You can't do climate change activism without that. You can't really care for people's physical needs without that. But given that it's true, those who just want to hide in the spiritual and not get their hands dirty uh, in this uh, veil of tears, dealing with real issues... Uh, practicing a kind of denial of the resurrection, and look, we all do it um, to some degree. Well, let's not say all. I, I know that I'm, a, you know, I need to get off my butt more and do more and get my hands dirty more. Um, but I don't deny that all these issues are important and all reflect an aspect of the new creation, That's the good things that we do. Here's the thing: um, for in Him all the fullness. In Greek, it's the word pleroma. I'm not going to tease that out. I just think it's a great word. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Uh, So if you want to know what God is like, then you look at Jesus. That's the kicker for Christianity, ultimately. You don't start with God being omniscient, omnipotent, impassable, and all these categories of Greek thought, which some people think is just a, a great inheritance from the Greek world and how much it's helped us to do theology. Yeah, maybe, maybe not bringing things in uh, is a bit hit and miss. It's, it's funny, I was uh, online the other day and people were talking about smoking ceremonies, uh, which is a traditional Abri- Aboriginal practice. Um, and they were referring to that in church as syncretism. And I pointed out, well, most of the things you do in church as syncretism, uh, whether it's wearing a dog collar or the ordained person wearing a tie or um, all manner of things. And I'd include... In that some of our ecclesial structures, so and 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 the point I've raised, reason I've raised this is of course, um, Greek philosophy is that an example of syncretism, insisting upon these particular characteristics of God when, where we meant to start, We're meant to start with Jesus and God is love and and what's revealed there, but getting back to this passage then and then the last bit is, that I want to highlight, and through Him God was pleased to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross, reconciling to himself all things. Uh, in, and this phrase, all things, has been belted, you know, we've been belted about the head by the phrase, all things, through this passage, like uh, being belted with a wet fish. Uh, in him, all things in heaven and earth were created, things invisible, invisible. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Uh, I think, um, yeah, and so God was pleased to reconcile him to himself all things. Now, you you may wonder why um, the whales need reconciling to God, and yet ultimately creation needs to be summed up and made whole. But when you go back and you look at, and and here's the thing I'll leave you with, when it talks about um, all things including thrones, dominions, rulers or powers, God's not just interested in saving or redeeming or reconciling individuals, but what about all these lying corrupt politicians that we deal with, not naming names? What about ExxonMobil, who've lied about climate change? Will that be reconciled to God? What does it mean for military juntas and uh, those who uh, engage in coups? All the, what about, um, you know, uh, media companies who sell us a whole bunch of lies racist, corrupt, colonialist, sexist, misogynist, um, climate change denying lies and, and reflecting back to us a twisted, warped vision of the world. Will those things be reconciled to God? And the answer, of course, is yes. Now, that doesn't mean that these things won't be transformed. So maybe it will be, for example, ExxonMobil to be reconciled to God is to completely transform its business practice. It won't be enough if the entire board of ExxonMobil, for example, I'm not just speaking on them, but, you know, when you lie about climate change and you fund that lying and you've done research for many years to show it's true, um, there's something wrong. Wouldn't matter if the entire board, executive board, were all Christian, but if their practices weren't reformed, redeemed, uh, repented of, what differences are made? Or maybe they just go out of business. I don't know. But the, the, I guess the point is I'm trying to make is is really just that phrase all things. We make appeals to individuals at Easter because we want individuals to respond, but their responding, their repentance, their transformation is part of the reconciliation of all things, and we need to proclaim the all things being reconciled a lot more. And it's so tied up with Jesus being the image of God, the one through whom all things were made. All things hold together. Don't separate Christmas from Easter from creation. It's all a nonsense. It's all of one piece. We need to start talking about all things more uh, this Easter time and moving forward. So look, I I hope my rambling, my raving um, was somewhat helpful. If you've been listening for long enough, you know a bit about how my mind works. I also hope that you had a fantastic Easter, that there's a lot of um, preachers out there doing a great job to want to reach people with the gospel, encourage the faithful over Easter. But there are... Other things that can be said, and there is a broader perspective to, to make, and so it's my appeal um, that you do that, that you encourage others to do that. And once more, thank you for listening, and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players, and downloaded from the free music archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean. Apple and Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.